Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there, people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. Our guest today is Binush Nazmin, a practicing midwife based in the Northwest who has been working to address health inequalities within the profession, running workshops on cultural competency and safety, and starting to build a bit of a movement around her work. She is co-founder of the South Asian Midwives Association, is on the editorial board for The Practicing Midwife, and is co-chair for the Births Inquiry into Racial Injustice in UK Maternity Systems. I was very lucky to meet Binash through the NHS Horizons School for Change Agents programme, that's a mouthful, where we were tasked with having an honest conversation about power. And by the end of the chat, I felt that she had taught me more about being pirate than I had really taught her. And I was so impressed with her story and her approach that I really wanted to bring her to the podcast audience as part of our ongoing theme of challenging and changing the rules in healthcare. You'll notice that Sam is absent from the podcast today as he's doing some last minute mission critical filming for the Uncertainty Experts programme. But I'm kind of pleased to have Binash all to myself and get to do all the interviewing. I hope you enjoy the chat. So to kick us off, it would just be really good to hear about how you became midwife. Where did that motivation and original interest come from? I flipped a coin. (laughs) Being the youngest of six and being an immigrant myself, I was four years old when I came to the UK. I always promised my mum as I was growing up that I'd go to university. My elder siblings didn't really go to university and she's always kind of wanted some of her children to kind of be that level educated because my mum's very intelligent woman. But back in the village we lived in, Kashmir, education for girls only went up to so far within the village itself. And then after that, you would have to travel outside of the village. It depends on logistics and what's available, what's not available. Mm -hmm. So my mum only traveled as far as the local college. And then after that, couldn't go into further education because travel was much further out as an hour's worth of journey a day. And she's a really intelligent woman. And I just sometimes I think back and I think, 
just imagine what she could have done if she had been educated. So I somehow picked up that her passion for my education as a child somewhere along the line. And I promised her I'd go to university. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I um, got to college and it came to that time of applying for UCAS. And I just sat there thinking, I promised my mum I'm going to do this and I don't know what I want to do. I sat there, read five prospectuses back to front. And back then they were physical prospectuses, you know, not like all online nowadays, but reading them, two things spoke out to me. And I'm very much a believer in going for things that I feel connected to. And the two things I felt connected to was teaching and midwifery. And I was told that midwifery is extremely difficult to get into. You're probably not going to make it, you know, therefore I had a very much a plan in my kind of head. I was like, well, I want to do both. I'm not sure. I flipped the coin. It landed on midwifery. I was told I'm not going to get into it. I was like, well, why the heck do I apply and see where this ends up? If I don't get into it, I'll have a gap year and do teaching next year. And that was very much my plan of action. Lo and behold, I got into midwifery. (laughs) Surprise to the naysayers. And then I came home and I told my mother, and I had to explain to her because my mum still didn't speak very good English. I had to explain what the job and the role entails. And she told me my grandma was a village midwife in Kashmir. There's legacy. There we go. Interesting. Can I quickly ask, why is it difficult to get into midwifery specifically? Did you find that out along the way? It's like a lot of maternity medical training programs where you have to do a certain amount of on-the-job training, but it's more than average. So, for example, if you're doing your training for a doctor, only certain years do you do placements, whereas midwifery, you start from the get-go. Every year, you have to have 50% of your grade comes from your practical learning on the job with your mentor, who is a midwife. So if we have a shortage of midwives to begin with, which we do when we've always had a shortage of midwives, then we are limited in the amount of midwives that can mentor students. Mm, Okay. And we want to make sure the quality of education they get is top level. Therefore, we are limited because of placement opportunities are limited. So got into midwifery, started on your journey. At what point... Did you start to notice that things maybe could be better than they were? I was so struck by your ability to challenge some of the norms within the system because that's the purpose of the podcast. But it's also the thing that I hear so much when I'm running workshops and things. And even just last week, I noticed a comment on one of my LinkedIn posts that was saying, you know, I call it piracy, but, you know, the the ability to challenge norms when you're inside an organization or a system, it's so much easier said than done. Yet you have definitely made some changes and really stood your ground on certain things. How did you get there? How did you start to find your own power? As a society, we're taught to conform. We're taught to edit and adapt ourselves to fit in. Anything that is going against the grain or raising a challenge is considered problematic and therefore goes against some of our core values or principles that we have been indoctrinated to have as part of our core belief system. Just as humans, we like to be liked, don't we? We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. We want to be appreciated. And we then present ourselves differently depending on who we're speaking to or where we are. And this is the same for when we're in our professional environments. If we believe that something is going to be a challenge, we 
err away from it. And it takes time. It takes pressure. It takes a buildup of frustration. It takes personal growth. And it also takes a confidence in your belief that you can make change because you have to be confident in the change you want to make for you to then go against this massive internal struggle and just put your head above the parapet. And if we don't, we continue. Yeah. Were there any particular moments for you that made you realise, okay, I have to do something? There was various different moments. And I think those various different moments were in themselves standalone. You know, if I'd taken them into account, they would have been one-off small little things that would have not meant anything or done anything. But then when my brain started to make the connections, I started to have a realization of a bigger issue. And it starts from the very early years of me being a newly qualified midwife and being very close to being burnt out to the point where I went abroad. I went to work in a country that had a insurance um, style health service. And at the time, I thought that was the first time I saw people being treated differently based upon race, based upon health insurance, based upon basic things like this. And I came back to the UK because I thought the NHS was equal for all. It's a welfare state. It's free point of access for everybody. It's brilliant. And it's amazing. I was taught that. But I came back with a different lens. And maybe because I could start to now see the similarities of how people were being treated differently based upon how they were outwardly perceived. Did I start to feel like things aren't quite as equal as I had hoped or believed initially? And then I personally started to reflect upon my own journey within the workforce and how at times I felt that I wasn't given equal opportunities or equal support or equal training. And then I kind of persisted with lots of resistance from myself internally, you know, from a wider space to kind of start speaking up about it. And I started small. I started with my allies, my tribe, the people in my inner circle, because once I say it out loud, they also then are aware and they also started noticing issues and things. And then I got to a management position and then I had people coming and telling me that they were being discriminated or they felt they were being treated unfairly based upon how they outwardly looked. These were members of staff who were junior And the things they were telling me were things that resonated with me personally. And it took me back to that burnout. And I realized before I even got to that country abroad, far away, I was at a burnout because I was being treated the way I was being treated within the workforce. So for example, not getting breaks in a timely manner, which is quite typical within the NHS. It's not specific to me, I promise you, but almost like if everyone else has had the break, you were the last person to get one or you were most likely to be forgotten. Coming onto a board and knowing if it's a quiet day or a night, you're, you know, one of those rare shifts. (laughs) 
But if it's one of those shifts where it is quiet, and we don't like saying that word in the NHS, but hey, ho, I've said it now, then you're going to be the one that's going to be allocated that single person that might be on the board or your workload is going to be heavier or more complex in comparison to your counterparts. Or even at hand over time, noticing that if you looked a certain way, you were sat in the center of the room, you were talking with each other. And as colleagues came in that looked like you, they were graciously brought into this inner circle and like nice, loud welcomes. Hello. Hi, how are you? How's your family? And colleagues who looked outwardly different were either sometimes not even acknowledged or mumbled at and then ended up being on the outskirts of the circle. So really subtle, I don't want to say unconscious, we can talk about unconscious bias, very subtle indicators or outwardly appear subtle until you start voicing it, indicators that cultural discrimination going on, cultural, perhaps in the broadest sense of geographical cultures, but also culturally that every workplace has culture and you're in or out and you kind of just know when you're in or out. So you were seeing a lot of people talking about things that you'd also then noticed happening to yourself. Yes. Making that connect, I think, was the biggest part because people before that would ask me if I'd faced discrimination or racism. And I would always say, no, no, I haven't because I believed it. I believed I hadn't. But then I have to remember, I now have to remind myself, as a child, I grew up outwardly being told I need to go back to my own country. Terms were used and shouted at me on the streets when I used to walk to primary school. You know, it's a defensive mechanism. It's a survival technique that you kind of use to protect yourself because to admit you're not part or welcomed or, you know, equal in a society that you feel like you belong in and you have always felt like you belonged in, it's difficult. Yeah, it's really emotionally tough. There's no other way to describe it. Another point I'd like to add to that. That feeling of realisation, and that's what it is, it's realisation and awareness of what your place or perceived place in a space is, or society for this example is, that comes to everybody at some point. We all say that we want to be normal or, you know, fit in, but everybody in their own nuances and their ways is different. And they all have a realisation at some point. But the more intersections you have, the more those realizations affect you. And it's, for example, you know, the fact you're female. It's actually a patriarchal world we live in. And the cases of, you know, Sabina Nessas and Sarah Everas. For me, for example, I'm a Muslim. And every time I hear of any terror attack anywhere, I'm worried about going out because I'm worried about the questions someone might ask me or the fact that I might actually have my hijab pulled off my head. The fact that my skin is a different colour is different altogether. It's really something that unless you voice the difference in lived experience, no one will ever know necessarily, or someone who's in a different position just won't know. You're right. It's obviously doubled for you being female, Muslim, from Kashmiri background. And there's so many different intersections there. Even I can just think that now that it's getting dark in the evening, I've just I've just had this realisation this week that like, I go to a yoga class three times a week it's at six o'clock or whatever and just that it's going to be dark now and I usually walk and I walk through the park and I'm like now I can't do it anymore for the next six months <laughs> after I either get you know a bus or 
or a taxi. And when you voice that out loud and say, actually, there is a big difference in the experience that you have. It's that understanding, isn't it? It's the fact that once you realise that there's a different way of living for different parts of society, and they have to have different considerations for everyday things that change seasonally for this in this example, then you kind of expect people to be more understanding and open to discussing and learning. But instead, you find people are very defensive. Mm. And you find people almost feel like it's a competition between all these protected characteristics. But I have a brilliant friend, you know, who says it like it is, and she calls it trauma trumps. This isn't a game of trauma trumps. Trauma Olympics. Yeah, I've heard that before. No, this isn't a game. It's not a competition. It's a how can we all make it better for all of us and support each other through this? Absolutely. And approaching it more from a learning perspective rather than a defensiveness perspective. Like how do you break that down? I, I mean, I completely agree. I've had examples where I've been on both sides of the fence. Where I've, I had to explain to a man who's older than me that whatever he might perceive, I still find it more intimidating to be young and female talking to a group of older men. Like I just do because I perceive that they perceive that I'm not as experienced. And it is also to do with a historical legacy of those kinds of men being at the helm of power. And then I've also been on the flip side when I remember going to an event in Newcastle a couple of years ago. It was one of the first people I met through Be More Pirate, a lovely young man called Dean who had various disabilities. And he was explaining to me when we were just going for a drink after the event that he couldn't get up to the bar because there's just three tiny steps. And he said it would just be so much easier if there was a bell down here that you could just ring for service. It's a teeny, teeny adjustment that's really not costly to make, but you'd never see it from my perspective because... There's probably nobody here who works for this organization who's got my perspective and they haven't taken it into account. And that's always stayed with me. And in fact, he's going to do an accessibility check on our entire website and social media because he very rightfully said, you haven't made it accessible. And I was like, yeah, you're right, Dean. I've completely been negligent. Anyway, that was a, yeah, a long aside, but. Let's talk about accessibility though. It's so important that we talk about that because people forget that when you make something accessible for one person in society or one marginalized group, you actually indirectly might make it more accessible for other people who you have completely even forgotten. One of the classic cases is when they started lowering the curbs so that you could just slope on and off curbs. And this was initially for disabilities. Actually, it started off because people realized that if you have a wheelchair user, they go where the driveways are because they can easily get onto the curb. And then they realize, well, why don't we do more of that to make going on and off curbs easier? But then who also benefited mothers with prams? Yeah, absolutely. And why is it such a barrier for people to want to look from different perspectives? That's what I wondered, to really realize that it's not the same for everyone. In my opinion, and I will say it clearly, it's my opinion. I think when you realize I'm prime example. I feel guilty about things I have said and done in the past because I have been biased or I have unknowingly discriminated against massive parts of society. And it's because I've learned this from things and places I've been exposed to. But it's difficult to sit with, sitting with that guilt, because as human beings, we want to think we're good people and we are caring people. And we are. But we are also black and white and grey and all of the shades of the rainbow too. And we can go in and out of those places 
to do that and understand that we have to sit in that discomfort. And we're now in a phase actually, where it's easier to distract ourselves than it is to sit in that discomfort and grow. I find that the discomfort is easier if you're able to somehow separate. I'm not a bad person. It's just bad behaviors. Behaviors are learned. Behaviors can change. It's just choice and awareness. When you put that on the table for people, I think it's easier not dismissing their entire being (laughs) because that's not the point of any of this. The point is to dignify people. (laughs) Absolutely. And together, you know, we learn so much from each other. We grow together. And being able to have these frank and open discussions means that we all take something away from it. We all learn from it and we all grow. Historically, what's happened is people have been in echo chambers surrounded in a group of people or in the algorithm of the social media stratosphere puts them in one specific arena only. To break that, you have to go out of your echo chamber and you have to go into someone else's and hear their voices and hear their experiences and their realities and then be like, okay. How do you systematize in some way? When I say systematize, I mean make it more regular and, I guess, systematic in some way that we break down silos and bubbles as part of workplaces, as part of education systems very, very deliberately because I enthuse people to do this in our workshops and things, but you know, it's ultimately their choice and up to them as they want to take that forward as an action. But I wonder what you learned maybe from communities that you work with, because you work with different kinds of people. And you mentioned in your presentation that one barrier you're facing is women who have learned to expect a traumatic experience of birth because that has become normalized because they've received poor care in the past and their mothers have received poor care and they haven't understood that it doesn't have to be that way. How do you support them to realize that it doesn't have that it doesn't have to be the way that it is? <laughs> this is where we tackle the subject of intergenerational trauma really and the cycles we learn. And if I'm talking to people who have a better understanding of feminism, patriarchy and misogyny and how that affects cycles, well, what did happen over and over again? People who were marginalized realized they were being marginalized and then they challenged it. And others saw this and started to understand and reflect upon their own experiences. And then it went further. I think there are trigger events that happen that cause big uprises. And often in movements, you find these trigger events are the point where people talk about it more often. For example, now Sarah Everard. Sabina Nessa, the reality is because something's happened, other people have come forward and spoken about it. And now they've realized there's an issue. So not only society seeing this, but those individuals are realizing what happened or has happened or the way they have to live is not right. And so after that realization, do people start to then start to think about, well, how do I go forward from here? And it's the same with trauma. You can't take a sledgehammer because then that is allowing the dam just to flood. And what you almost need to do is be present and listen and let people slowly tell their truth in a space that they are able to. And this is going to vary 
and it's going to be different and people are going to present themselves in different ways. And sometimes we don't understand that because culturally speaking, people can present themselves differently. And this is when I talk about how, you know, certain communities are potentially more articulate about talking about mental health because they've been either exposed to it or it's a conversation that they've been involved in or something that's become normalized in their community. Therefore, they are more likely to speak about mental health. That others who are starting to understand, but still there's this kind of negative kind of clientele and they're now starting to reach out for help, but still don't want you to, as a clinician, send letters to their house with mental health in the title or on the sheet so that other people can't see it but they're asking for the help. And then there's those who still don't even know what mental health is, what the signs and symptoms are. And they come to us so far down the spectrum of physical symptoms. They're so far down the spectrum because they haven't understood or recognized the earlier signs and symptoms. And they're coming with headaches and indigestion or abdominal pain or something. And we've checked everything and clinically they're fine. So we're like, you know, we can't find anything wrong, but because they can't articulate themselves, we struggle to diagnose. But for example, some people might perceive a behavior and call it agitated. Well, actually, that might just be them showing they're anxious because it's very similar. Those irritable kind of attitudes when you're anxious, that unable to sit fiddling or something can happen just because you're anxious, but you're more inclined to see a certain part of society and label them differently and say someone is angry, someone is agitated, someone is frustrated, someone's non-compliant, and someone else completely is anxious and worried and concerned. I want to go into this a bit more because this is really where language plays a role. Because that language is labels we give reality. And they can be so misleading. And when you've got a you know a system in where you have to write notes and pass them on to the next care provider who then interprets those notes based on the language you've used which is subjective, that can be a problem. And yet, on the other hand, you have very medicalized language, which I suppose is intended to be neutral, but obviously isn't neutral because no language is really neutral. And you've talked about lots of our health and social care crew talk about problems with language, whether it's service user and the dehumanizing element of that. You've talked about calling people hard to reach and you said easier to ignore is a better phrase. And if that's too offensive for you or, you know, makes you really uncomfortable, how about underserved, underrepresented? Yeah, exactly. And I think that being able to change or challenge language we're using around things is such an easy way to begin to rehumanize some of the way that we're approaching healthcare. What's your take on that? I completely agree with that. And I think those conversations have been had within this stratosphere a lot. I think I have a different inclination as well. I have um, a little bit of a different perspective. And someone who works within healthcare, anyone who works within healthcare, one of the first things they are taught go on their journey to healthcare professionals, and it might be from clinicians, or it mostly is generally from universities, is if it's not documented, it didn't happen. It's being clear about your documentation. And in the field that I'm in, which is maternity, you know, documentation's kept for about four or five years anyway, in general. But for my remit, it's kept up to 25 years. 
So if those documents are kept up to 25 years and maybe the parents don't want to complain, but maybe the child grows up at 21, 22 or 24, decides that there's something that happened to them at birth that they would like to look into, you might be pulled in to give a testimony or a statement and you have to go off the documentation you wrote at the time. I'm sure a lot of people don't remember what happened 25 years ago. So it's kind of that defense mechanism And it's that perspective of you defensive practice, because if it didn't happen, you didn't write it. But in that mindset, what they indirectly also teach is because you're defensively writing all the time, it's easier than subconsciously distribute blame to individuals for maybe not attending an appointment or maybe not taking your advice, therefore being non-compliant. But Why don't we just say they have made an informed decision based upon the options you gave them? Yeah, you're right. There is blame entangled in that label. Can you move away from that defensive kind of writing? I think people need to start first realizing the impact it can have. And like you said, you know, as clinicians, we often read documentation before we approach an individual. And if you write or read things that are potentially not as favorable towards the individual you're going to see, then you will have built up a perception of this individual. Therefore, you will treat them differently in comparison to if you'd gone without any documentation. So knowing and being aware of that first as a clinician who is going to see that individual and saying, well, I'm not going to let any of this stop me from treating this person to the best of my ability. And actually, I'm going to consciously counter any of that and try to understand exactly why they didn't want X, Y, Z, so that I can maybe find a compromise that will work for them, or why they didn't attend this appointment. And often when you unpick the why, you learn the human factors behind it. You learn that actually they couldn't attend that appointment because it was at a time of day where they have no transport and they can't make it, or they've got to be somewhere else. They're trying to get signed on at the job center or they are simply trying to pick up their child or you know they have a class maybe they're in education there's lots of things like that and then there's also unpicking of the why well why did you not decide this well because I've been told certain medication has things that go against my dietary requirements or I've been told that this is going to cause me pain You know, there's always something underlying, but I think when we have structures that are very restrictive and we are short staffed and, you know, we have lots of pressures on us, which we do within the healthcare, then we have time limitations and it's difficult to unpick things because we don't have the time to do that. And if there's an added thing as a language barrier, then there's even more struggle to truly get to the bottom of things. And when I talk about language barrier, I don't necessarily mean the obvious of languages being spoken in a different way. I also talk about a person's ability to articulate themselves and how they're feeling. I am also talking about someone's ability to learn, you know, learning difficulties and neurodivergency is, you know, a person's ability to process what you're saying to them. And it might take people longer This doesn't mean they don't have capacity. It just means it takes them longer to understand things. That what you describe is ultimately should be the baseline for creating a healthcare system that 
is for everybody, which is what the NHS is there to do. But it strikes me that just so much more, like you say, unpicking and reflection is required in order to actually be able to deliver that effectively. However, the time pressure that everybody talks about, and this may be a provocative question, but do you feel that people just let themselves off the hook because of that? As a clinician, as someone who works clinically, someone who works within management, I realise the limitations we have. I know how difficult it can be to work in a system where you are overstretched, you are working at capacity all the time, you are constantly firefighting, you do not have enough staff. And you have to be constantly thinking on your feet how to manage and how to support all while trying to provide care to the best of your ability. I understand that. I feel like there is a system and the NHS was developed with the best of intentions and it was developed in a time for a welfare state and for equality and equity for everybody. The demographics have changed vastly, but the system has not changed as effectively to serve those demographics. Sometimes we are so busy, we are literally just trying to work in a system that may not necessarily be working. And we should probably reconsider systems as they are currently, so that we can be more effective and more efficient with the resources we have. Yeah, there's two things I want to um, pick. Well, three things I want to pick up on as how to as how, in a way how you're sort of actually doing that. I think first of all, you know, forming almost like external groups, movements to support each other that is with the system but outside of it, as you've done like with the Association of South Asian Midwives, is like a peer group to talk about this and, and leverage support from each other. I'm really interested to know a bit about demedicalizing birth as a process, which feels like in doing that you are kind of changing the system because you're showing there's an alternative experience to be had here around birth. I think I read somewhere that when a woman has the same midwife from the beginning to the end of the birth experience, it's so much of a better experience. But that's generally not the norm because maybe you told me this. I don't know. (laughs) It's generally not the norm just because of shifts and how long it can happen. Maybe talk about the first one, the idea of the movement. (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm part of the demedicalizing birth movement. I am absolutely pro-choice. And that's the movement I'm in, I would say. I am the person who will advocate for your choice, make sure that you are understand and aware of all of the options. There are times when medical intervention is absolutely necessary and it saves lives, but also there's always different ways of doing things. I think we can sometimes, and and this is both sides, you know, as someone who is accessing services, I might have certain thoughts and made certain decisions about the way I want my birth experience to be. And I might be quite adamant on that. And, And I've made those decisions. But also as someone who's on the other side as a clinician, I'm used to evidence-based practice and guidelines and policies that I have to follow and pathways I have to follow because that's what my hospital and my registration and everything depends upon. So it's when things are so black and white that we don't leave space open for every bit in between. And we know we are not so straight cut as human beings. We aren't 
always in one side or the other side. There's everything in the middle. And it's when it's everything in the middle that the policies and the guidelines don't cover. Sometimes we might struggle to look at how we can do this and support someone in their choice. And that's when things get difficult because the person might feel like they're not being heard or listened to. And therefore that might change the way they interact with us or access our care or disengage from us. And on the other side, if we're so restrictive, how are we going to grow and tackle this when it comes again? Because people are going to want to work outside of our, you know, or have requests that are outside of our guidelines. And rightly so. It's their bodies. It's their choice, their human right. So I think we probably definitely have that. There's a lot of perception that midwives are pushing this normal birth agenda. And there's a lot of conversation in the media around calling it normal birth or calling it physiological birth. You know, all the labels that is giving it and how it makes anything else not birth or the birth the appropriate way or all the politics around that. And I don't buy into any of it because I buy into the concept of I'm here to care for you and what you want and how you want to say it. And the words you use is what I will work with because that works for you. And the next person who comes, they'll be completely different and they'll have completely different views and thoughts and backgrounds and cultures and lived experience. Therefore, their personal choice is different. The words they use, the ideas and the decisions they make will be what they want. Yeah. And do you think inherent in that approach that always being on the side of the individual and and their choices and the expression of what they would be most comfortable within that you are in a sense that is the most human approach you could possibly have that seems to encompass to me what a a rehumanized approach to healthcare would be in that you're you're listening so carefully to the person and ensuring that whatever they choose you're by their side ultimately going to make a person more comfortable it doesn't mean that i don't tell them all the options and i don't tell them what the pros and cons of all of them are the only way you can truly support someone is say all of that and let them know that but at the end of the day you support an individual on most important or one of the most important times of their life yeah i completely agree the binary black and white approach only just polarizes us further anyway there are so many gray areas and differences and it's just stepping back and appreciating that and seeing where people are coming from i do want to ask you about your job title and fighting for your job title because specialist cultural liaison midwife is an unusual well i've never heard that job title before how did you come to that So I went for an interview that had a completely different job title and it was along the lines of an acronym that has famously been one of the only things that only civil report addressed. I'm not going to say it, but it was something lead midwife and something else as well. It was two different jobs. I had lost my dad recently. I was going for this job because my friends were like, well, this is job is perfect for you. You've been talking about this. Get out there now and speak about it. And this was the first job interview I went to where I wasn't worried about how I was going to be perceived. I kind of went in to tell them the truth. And I spoke my truth and I spoke the truth that I had witnessed and observed for every question they asked me. And then towards the end of the interview, there's always the, do you have any questions? And I was like, well, what support am I going to get in this job role? Because this is two job roles. 
And one of them is looking at health inequalities. One of them is something else completely different. I'm coming from a different role and therefore I'm going to have to learn both of these roles, but also I'm only interested in health inequalities within the services. And that's why I'm coming. And therefore that's where my passion will be because you've obviously identified there's a need to address this. So please consider that's where my focus will be. I also mentioned, I think, something along the lines that, let's be honest, and this was back in early 2020, actually, it was back in February 2020, I think. And this isn't something that we're doing because it's topical. This is something we're doing because it, it needs to be addressed. I didn't expect to get the job. I got the job. And then the first thing we did was we changed the job title. It was a conversation around, well, I don't want to have to explain that I'm here because the color of your skin is different. I would much rather explain that I am here to build bridges between cultures. I have to say, I just love this story because I think it's such a strong symbol and message you're sending. A job title is is part of a professional identity. I think that becomes very, very important to a person and it's on everything and people ask what you do and you say, this is who I am. And and so having the power and control over that and you being able to go to them and say, I'm sorry, but this is not from my perspective, like the way that you just articulated it. I don't want to say that to people. It'll get your relationships off on quite an odd footing. I think it's just such a wonderful example of a small, courageous action to take. It's like a lighthouse signal to other people to say, this acronym, these old labels don't have to exist anymore necessarily. It just takes one person to say no. I think that's really powerful. It takes one person to say no. It also takes one person to be really conscious about what they say. And when I say what they say, I mean, it's about not perpetuating stereotypes, not perpetuating kind of the presumptions and biases that currently exist. I have consciously in this whole conversation tried to stay away from labeling individuals or cultures or putting anything or anyone or any community into a box, apart from when I was labeling myself. I'm happy because I'm happy to self-identify and say who I am, but I am not happy to make decisions for others or perpetuate stereotypes. And I'm happy to be challenged if I do do so, because I want to grow and I want to learn and I want to be challenged. So I think that's how I can do that. And I can demonstrate that. And I hope others can learn from that. I definitely think they can. I think you have done that very effectively. It's made me think, <laughs> definitely be more conscious of, of language. I just think people will need to be able to be listening and learning that there is a different way to talk about certain things, but also not feel so defensive, as we've said before, like, oh, this person's going to catch me out, that I've said something wrong because, you know, language is organic. So you pick it up from other people. The more you hear it a different way, the more you're going to say it. But vice versa, you know, if everybody's grown up with a particular norms around language, it can be very hard to break away from that. And and I I try to also be relatively forgiving of the mistakes. Sometimes we use words because they're the best we know. Yeah. When we're challenged on it, we've done the best we can. Why is someone criticizing us for doing our best? They're challenging you to be better. And I think when this opportunity comes, we say, I am sorry no excuses. I am sorry. Thank you. I'm constantly learning. 
I think the fear of offending and saying something wrong stops us from having those conversations, which is the worst thing we can do. They say silence is compliance, which it truly is. But they say also, you know, the fear of growing will stop you from growing. And I wouldn't have some of the best friends I have right now if I hadn't openly discussed things with them. And if I didn't challenge them and they didn't challenge me. Yeah. I have to say, I'm worried that the emotional toll of this last year or two has exhausted people to the point where they don't want to try being in comfortable positions because they're just already exhausted from life. And that will be such a shame. Is <laughs> I'm doing the best I can here. A shame is an understatement. You know, it will be such a disservice to society. We run cultural safety and competency workshops for healthcare professionals. We also have separate safe and brave spaces for people who are from marginalised communities. So when we're doing this work, people often are like, well, what do you do when people just don't want to do anything? What do you do? And I'm like, well, that's people's personal choices. That's where they are in life right now. And just because they're there right now doesn't mean that they won't go on when they are able to. We all deserve a break, you know, it's been a particularly horrendous (laughs) and challenging couple of years. We as human beings deserve to have a break, deserve to disconnect and take care of ourselves. But the reality is you can have that break and you can take care of yourself, but society will always be here. And when you are ready, you're going to come back to it. And do you want to be in a society that is not inclusive? Beautifully said. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's making me almost reflect in real time how I'm talking about things and all the things I just don't know about <laughs> about healthcare. And I suppose one thing I'd like to just finish on, maybe it's a bit of a cheesy question then. <laughs> Is there any advice you'd give as a, a starting point? Anything we do in life, we're at risk of becoming exhausted and burnout and COVID burnout is very real and burning out doesn't mean that it stops you know it doesn't mean that everything finishes it just means that for a period of time things are different so once you've rested and recuperated think about how you would like to go forward because let's talk about where we are right now as a society we're probably all a bit burnt out So I think it's so important to reflect upon what's important to you and what your purpose is. I um, posted on my Instagram something and it was literally two circles and it's passion and cause. And in between the two is your purpose. So find your purpose. And when you are actively passionate about this cause, it's something that's valuable to your core and to your principle. If you speak up about it, you're not doing anything wrong. You're being true to yourself and you're gaining confidence in yourself and you're showing yourself the respect to be able to put something into words. And if it starts with you saying it to your friends and to your inner circle, start there because that's where I started. But as you gain confidence, say it in the spaces and the places where you feel like you need to say it. And if that organization isn't open, then do you really want to continue to be in that space? Is that space worthy of you? Because I'm telling you, I promise you, the opportunities out there are abundant. I've got one final thing to ask then in relation to that. Is there any opportunities that you're seeing at the moment in terms of the work you're doing around health inequality that you're excited about? 
I have been approached to write a book for the course that we run. Wow. (laughs) I don't want to give too much away, but I just want to say this opportunity is something that we are passionate about, something that going to challenge the readers and something that we need to stop having and actions we need to all start taking. The fact that you've been approached to write the book shows that the conversations on the classes that you've been running clearly have been resonating and somebody's people are recognising that work. So congratulations. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Be More Pirate on Instagram or Twitter, or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time.